The following is a message by Dr. Howell Jones from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Living and life-giving God, we gather before thee and in thy presence and give thee thanks that thou hast reached out to us with thine extensive grace and gathered us to Jesus Christ, the one mediator between God and men, by thine own appointing and endowing with the Holy Spirit, so that trusting in him we are born again, vivified to life eternal, and brought to thee, we give thee thanks that thou art now our heavenly Father, the God of all the earth, and we pray that thou wilt extend that grace uh, to multitudes even in these days, north, south, east, and west, and gather them from darkness to light and death to life through Jesus Christ for his sake. Amen. Well, I nearly blindsided myself this morning. I chose a psalm with a tune in my, in my mind that we normally sing it to and uh, find I'm confronted by Kyle Salem, which I've never sung as quickly before <laughs> and just managed to uh, contain myself. My fault, not yours. Let us turn to Isaiah 54, and I want to read verses 5 to 10. Let us hear the word of God. Isaiah chapter 54, and verses 5 to 10. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. May he bless to us his word. You are aware, I think, that my purpose over these next few weeks is to give attention, scant it has to be, but to give attention to Isaiah 55. 
This morning, however, we must turn to the previous chapter, which is the prelude to it. And it is also, of course, the sequel of chapter 53. And a couple of years ago, we treated chapter 53 as superficially as we are going to treat chapter 55. So by a kind of double necessity, there can be no justification for overlooking chapter 54. These three chapters are the hinge on which the prophet's message turns. And that can be seen by the way or the ways in which he uses the word servant. In 53, it's in the singular. And then at the end of 54, it's in the plural. And from 56 to 66, we never have the singular again. It's always the plural. There is therefore a servant who creates servants. And those servants referred to in 56 to 66 are not uh, the unbelieving Israelites. They are those who belong to the many nations, the seed which the servant has brought into being by his atoning work. And they are given another name, Isaiah tells us. Here then is the new Israel, the Israel of God, being brought to birth, brought into being through the suffering servant's obedient life and atoning death. Chapter 54 is the consequence of 53, and it's the anticipation of 55 and following. It's poetry, it's prophecy, and therefore it's full of illusion and imagery. And every detail in it needs to be explored in depth and milked for all its truth and life. Very briefly this morning, I want to consider this 54th chapter with you from two aspects, two themes. They are transition and transformation. Transition and transformation. There's a transition spoken of in this chapter in terms of God's dealings with his people. And consequently, there's a transformation of them. The verses that we read from the middle of the chapter describe that transition. The ones that precede and follow the transformation. Keep those two thoughts or the, the two truths with which they are connected always in your minds in that order. Because what we have here is God's further revelation in event and word, marking a new departure, not novel in the sense of unheralded, but new in terms of its being brought to fulfillment. His intervention and then the consequent transformation of his people. Revelation, redemption, 
is that new disclosure of his truth that has an effect upon those to whom the truth is made known. Keep them together. Redemptive history and the history of redemption. Revelation and the experience of it. Don't break that link. Don't reverse the order. And when you do that, you need, fe- you need not fear the twin evils of pietism on the one hand or nominalism on the other. So let's look at transition. Verses 7 to 10. The prophet refers to displeasure and desertion on the part of God and restoration and love. By way of contrast to it, he refers to the waters of Noah or the days of Noah. He's thinking of the flood. That manifestation of God's displeasure that was climactic in terms of its dealing in a way previously not manifested of Israel's long-continued covenant-breaking false worship, refusal to hear the words of the prophets. It was like the old world that God had brought into being at Sinai, being shaken to its very core. And you know, city was devastated, temple was razed to the ground, and the people were taken to Babylon in the 6th century BC. Like the flood, but worse than the flood, greater than the flood. But the prophet says, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. There's going to be a greater deliverance still that he predicts. He talks about their being forsaken for a little while, but being regathered forever. He talks about their being viewed with divine displeasure, but now with great compassion that lasts and will never, ever be brought to an end. There's an oath coming to fulfillment. It's a covenant of peace. He's referring to the greater judgment than the judgment of the flood. And he's referring to the greater return, restoration than the return from exile that will outlast the very fabric of the universe itself. The mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my covenant of peace will not be taken away from you, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. This is the great transition, the shift that is being predicted and anticipated. With certainty, how can he make this declaration when the whole history of God's people has been marked by infidelity, covenant disloyalty, because of 53? That's what makes the difference. There was one who was Israel in reality and Israel in fullness. And unlike wayward and disobedient Israel, what he did was to take the place of wayward and disobedient Israel and bore sin and bore iniquity. And the Lord struck him justly in his wrath. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. 
and because of that perfect atonement, there is a new covenant that will result and never ever need repairing. It will stand and it will remain. That's the transition that he is speaking of. And consequently, he envisages a transformation of those who are in that covenant. And he describes them in terms of God's bride and in terms of God's city. The bride in the opening verses, the city in the verses that conclude the chapter. There has been a terrible disruption in this marriage relationship as a result of which the bride has been unproductive. There has been no progeny. The future is questioned. But now, things are different. Why? Well, because the marriage relationship has been restored through this new covenant. And similarly, with the devastation of the city, that too is going to be rebuilt. Here's a glorious future being anticipated as a result of this great transition in God's dealings with his people. And so in this chapter, you don't find any reference at all to those distinctive Old Testament terms like Jacob or Israel or even, even Jerusalem or Zion. Those names are absent. The reality isn't absent, but the names are absent. Why? Well, because what's being described is, is, is what all those anticipated and predicted, something greater by far. There's the reclaiming of the wife with a result of a numerous progeny. That's why Calvin described this particular chapter, 54, as the renovation of the church. That's what Isaiah is standing on tiptoe to try to describe. The opening verse of chapter 54, picked up by Paul in Galatians 4. This is the Jerusalem that is above, that is the mother of us all. This is where freedom and fertility and productivity results from this new marriage between a heavenly bridegroom and an earthly bride, Christ and the church, making the church productive in his service. The inclusion of the Gentiles then is, is, is mentioned uh, here. The new covenant church, the Israel of God, and some of you will know that it was to these opening verses of chapter 54 that William Carey turned to preach that sermon that launched the great missionary movement called the Deathless Sermon. Somebody can tell me why it's so described. The only thing that I can think of is this, that it's still going on. It has never been in abeyance. That word is still running. We've heard it. It's reached us. We are part of this expansive outreach of the great truth and mercy of God to the nations. 
and similarly with the city. Devastated city. Remember lamentations. Not one stone left upon another. But here there are jeweled foundations and ornate battlements. And all the inhabitants of the city are taught by the Lord, the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus referred to this when he said, all your children shall be taught of God. There's reconciliation and there's righteousness and peace. And there is protection. For in spite of all that can be marshaled against this church, no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. It will all come to naught. Of his kingdom there shall be no end. The church is being built. A flock is being gathered. Other sheep brought to the good shepherd. And they're all defended and they're all protected. And not one of them will be lost. And they'll be brought from the far corners of the earth. Along with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. That's the picture that is the background to 55. And what 55 describes is how these servants, believing Jews, believing Gentiles, what they are to say to a world that needs to hear the message of the gospel. This is a picture then of great certainty and glory. That's how each of these chapters concludes. I will divide him a portion with the great. Cut off from the land of the living? The end? No. It's the beginning of something greater anew. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. He's the great ruler, the great Lord of all the earth. And then at the end of 54... No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. We're not on a fool's errand. We're not believing what is not true. And the task on which we are sent is one that we can be absolutely confident will not miscarry. His word will not return to him void. It will accomplish what he pleases and prospers in the thing to which he sends it. And there'll be a new world. Instead of the thorn shall come up the myrtle tree. Instead of the briar shall come up uh, the myrtle tree. It shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Some of you may be here and you know that there are those who think that you're wasting your time. You're believing what is palpably false and ridiculous. Don't believe them. Not for a moment. The truth is true. Christ has died, risen, ascended. He is reigning. He calls his servants, you and me, sends them out, assures them of his presence and the certainty of his triumph. That's how these chapters end. Great certainty. 
Note now in closing how they begin. See, behold my servant. Secondly, sing. Sing aloud. And shout. Shout aloud. Ho, everyone who thirsts. Look. Look at this servant. Look at his sufferings for sin. Look at the curse he bore for you. Look at your Savior. Look at God's Savior. Look until, like Bunyan, you could almost look your eyes away, not wanting to see anyone or anything else in terms of a Savior, but Jesus of Nazareth, the servant of the Lord. And look by the Spirit, see him in faith, and sing. Sing aloud to God. You're in a new world. You're in this new relationship with him that will never, ever be fractured or undermined. It will remain. It's dependent on his death. It's validated in his resurrection. He's at the right hand of God as our forerunner and our mediator. It will remain. Sing. This is something to sing about. Better than any of our national, any of our national anthems. And don't just sing. Don't just sing to God in worship and thanksgiving. Shout. In confident certainty. To a dying, thirsty, hungry, dead world of mankind. That needs the life and the light, the riches, the milk, the honey that is to be found in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Grant, O Lord, thy blessing on thy word. Give us a fresh glimpse of thy glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Enable us to rejoice in him with joy unspeakable and full of glory, and with boldness and certainty, make him known to men and women and boys and girls who need to hear of him and his work and his power to save and keep, to sanctify and glorify. Hear us in his name. Amen. Copyright 2012, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.